that this man would come out and maybe do a dance, maybe speak words over me, maybe cure, you know, do some great thing to cure me of this leprosy. When Elisha told him to dip in the Jordan River seven times to get rid of his leprosy, he became very angry. Naaman wanted to do it his way. Naaman already had figured out what was going to be when he arrived there. He wanted to be cleansed his own way, and he almost missed the cleansing that God had prepared for him because he thought something other than what God was thinking. He was not cleansed, you remember, until he fully obeyed God. You know, this example, I think, of Naaman shows us God's instructions are always specific. They're always specific, and they always provide blessings from God if, conditional if, they are followed to the letter. You know, Romans 15 and verse 4, Paul, by inspiration, would tell the Roman Christians there that things were written before time were written for our learning. And I believe that these Old Testament passages like Naaman, are there for that particular reason. You know, too often, man thinks differently than God does. God's ways and his thoughts are not man's ways and man's thoughts. Isaiah tells us that in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I want us this morning to, together to use this phrase, Behold, I thought, and look at some of the popular thoughts of men today in comparison to God's holy word. Turn your Bibles there back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> we're going to look at verse 26 beginning. God says that man is created in the very image and likeness of God. Moses there, the inspired writer of the book of Genesis, records, <clears throat> excuse me, verse number 26, chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man in his folly says, behold, I thought that we evolved from a lower life form. Behold, I thought that God makes no distinction between male and female. Behold, I thought we're on the same plane as animals. But we just read here that that's not what God's thinking is on that matter. God made us male and female for a reason. If you were here last Sunday night, Brother Brian brought us a lesson and he cited there a study that indicates that there's a school of thought out there that parents should not direct their children 
toward male or female. Let them decide which one they want to be. That's lunacy, according to God, because God made us male and female. God made man and women in the general sense of using the word man, meaning mankind. We are to have dominion over this earth and over plants and animals and all those kinds of things. We're not equal with them. We have, do- we are, we have rule over them. That's God's way, on the, that's God's thought on the matter. Secondly, God says that there is but one church. We'll look at some passages here in a moment in the New Testament concerning that. But man comes along and says, Behold, I thought that one church is just as good as another, or that one has the ability to quote, unquote, join the church of his choosing. God said there's one church. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 4. These are all familiar passages to each one, I'm sure. We just want to highlight some of these because they're numerous uh, concerning God's plan for his church, his body, his kingdom, all synonymous terms indicating the the group that the the body of Christ <clears throat> excuse me Ephesians 4 verse number 4 Paul there says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling one body he would say in other places that that body is Christ's body look at Ephesians chapter 1 <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, beginning. And he, God, put all things under his feet, Christ, and he gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his, Christ's body, the fullness of him, Christ, who fills all in all. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse number 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Notice the oneness, the exclusivity there that God has provided. Skip ahead in that same chapter to verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 12, 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. If you back up there in verse number 18, he says, But but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. It was to God's plan, God's pleasing that these things be organized this way. Have you ever noticed in the Bible everything that God says he's pleased with is perfect in its nature, its scope, its purpose. Go back and read about the the days of creation. God was pleased with all that because it was perfect. It, It fully followed his perfect plan and his will. Matthew 16, 18. 
We won't take the time to turn to it. You know the passage. Jesus there with his disciples. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you know how Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said in verse 18, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter. And upon the rock, this confession that you just made, that I am the Son of God, I will build my church. Singular. His church, not multiple churches. So God says there, but there's but one church, and that's what we need to go with. God says that baptism doth also now save us. First Peter three, verses twenty and twenty-one. But oftentimes men would say, "Behold, I thought that baptism is not essential to my salvation." We cited there 1 Peter 3 and 20 and 21. Acts 2 and 38 is another passage indicating the necessity of baptism for one's salvation. Acts 22, 16 is another one. Titus 3 and verse number 5. Look at Titus 3 and verse number 5. All in the context of essentiality of baptism for our salvation. Titus 3, verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's how we become Christians. That's how we obtain salvation, is through contacting the blood of Christ through baptism. You know, God says that baptism is a burial. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, again a familiar passage, but I believe it bears repeating. Paul there writing to the church, to Christians there in the first century city of Rome. <clears throat> Verse number 3 beginning, Romans 6. Or do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And I apologize that we're, we're moving through these relatively fat quickly. I hope that you're taking notes. You can study these things uh, on your, in your private time. Cle uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 2, verse number 12. Under the context that baptism is a burial. Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism, talking about Christ, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working God who raised him from the dead. Man says, behold, I thought that sprinkling and pouring are just as good. 
Turn your Bibles over, back over to the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. And I want to give Brother Joe Varner credit for pointing this verse out to me recently, because I hadn't noticed it before, maybe you hadn't either, but through his study he noticed something about Luke chapter 7 I believe is important for us today, particularly our religious friends who reject baptism. You remember in context of this passage, Luke chapter 7, that John the baptizer, the man that was prepared, had prepared the way for Jesus. God had, was working with him there in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem on the, around the Jordan River. All Jerusalem was going out to be baptized of John. John knew that he wasn't the Messiah. He was pointing, he was preparing the way to the Messiah that he was baptizing folks for, in the baptism of repentance in preparation of when the Messiah would come. Luke chapter 7. You remember how some of John, John sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus. He wanted to make sure that Jesus was the one who he said he was or who he claimed to be, the one that was being looked forward to. And you know how Jesus answers and sends message back to John that yes he was and that he was you know the gospel was being preached and dead were being raised and all those kind of things verse number 29 and when all the people heard him even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John verse 30 but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves not having been baptized by him What's, he, what's the message there that, that the inspired writer Luke is telling us? Could it be that it was God's will that these people be baptized by the baptism of John? And that by not doing that, they were rejecting the very will of God? I think you can't, you've got to be blind not to see that. So it's possible that we today, we have a baptism that's greater than the baptism of John. And it's possible that when we reject the instruction, the command of Jesus himself to be baptized, that we are rejecting the will of God. Think about that. Fourthly this morning, God says that one can fall from grace. Man in all his folly says, behold, I thought that once you had it, you couldn't lose it. And that God is a loving God that will not send anybody to a devil's hell. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verse number 4. Paul writing to Christians, you have become estranged or separated from Christ, he says, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. We've been studying on, in our adult class on Sunday mornings the book of Galatians and how there was a misconception that Christians had to be subject to the, the law of Moses in order to be acceptable to God. Well, that's the furthest from the truth. But Paul was saying here, those who attempted to do that, they'd fallen from grace. Because that's not, that wasn't God's plan for them at all. Revelation 2 and verse 5, you remember how John, the inspired writer, gives the message from Jesus in his writing, Jesus writing to the church in Ephesus there in verse 5 of Revelation 2. 
he says, turn from those things that you've, you've done, those sins that you've done, and because you, have, you need to remember where you've fallen from. Those who are once accepting and recipients of God's grace had fallen away because of their sinful activity and their attitude. There are many other passages that we don't have the time to turn to, but let's look, I'll cite them for you for your reference. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 22. But I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. It's possible to fall from grace. Hebrews 6, 1, beginning. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, but of the, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. That's a pretty dark picture that the Hebrew writer paints there for us, isn't it? In Hebrews 10, he would talk about how it's possible that those through their actions trod underfoot the blood of Christ. Again, a terrible picture. I believe what he's talking about here is those who fall away once they've known the blessings and beauty of God's grace through their obedience to his word. He says there it's impossible to renew them again. Nothing's impossible for God, but it's once someone lets their heart get hardened to the point where they reject God's saving grace, God's forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, they've pretty much made it impossible for themselves because they don't want to do that. They reject everything that God has prepared and provided for them for the forgiveness of sins. And that's a pretty dark place, isn't it? But we've got warnings throughout God's Word that, that that is possible. That is a possibility for those who allow themselves to get that far away from God. So it is possible that we can fall from grace. The next point this morning, God says that His Word is truth. But man says, Behold, I thought, God wouldn't care if I added a word or two here and there and deleted a scripture there or here. Or behold, I thought that partic that particular scripture was intended for someone else a long time ago in a different place in a different culture and has no applicability for me today where I live. You know, culture doesn't change God's word, as many people would try to point out today. I would submit for our thinking culture needs to change by God's word. Something to think about. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Truth is narrow, isn't it? Two plus two equals four. 
everywhere, every day, regardless of the culture. Truth is narrow. It has only one correct interpretation. I would remind us what, Timothy, what Paul said to Timothy there in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration or God. It's God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we've stated earlier, Romans 15 verse 4. All those things that were written before time were written for our learning. And God's word still says in John 12 and verse 48 that it's the words of Christ that will judge us in the last day. Look at Revelation chapter 22. Again, the inspired writer John there gives us a warning. A warning to those who would seek to pervert, to twist God's holy word. Revelation 22 verse 18 beginning. John says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy in this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Paul proclaimed there again in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing the word of God. The Hebrew writer reminds us in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that it's impossible without faith to please God. It's only through the true, unperverted Word of God that we can learn what to do to be saved and to live a life that's acceptable to God. 2 Timothy 3, and verse 6, or 15, because it is the Scripture that makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So God's word is truth. God says that one must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4 and verse 24. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. That's by the authority of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, verse number 17. However, man in his wisdom says... Behold, I thought, we need worship that's exciting. We need worship that is dynamic. We need worship that is entertaining. I hope that you never think that as a New Testament child of God. We are not the object of worship. Worship is for God. We are the ones, we are the subjects worshiping the great almighty king. It's not about us. But man in his wisdom has said we need to change it. Man in his wisdom has says, behold, I thought God surely will accept whatever I want to do in worship. As long as I'm sincere and I call it worship, God must accept my worship. That's what man thinks. But that's not what God thinks. I would challenge anyone to show me one example in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, where God says or implies, quote, 
just do whatever you wish and call it worship, and I'll be okay with it. It isn't there. And too many people today are being led astray by church leaders who teach that man is the object of worship and not God. You know, worship that's acceptable to God can only be that which he, God, has authorized. As we stated earlier, John 4 and 24. Jesus told that Samaritan woman there at the well, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? What does worship in spirit mean? I would cite for our thinking Ephesians 5 and 19. It's from the heart. We use that passage to authorize singing without accompaniments of instruments and music. But I believe it gives us insight into where that worship is supposed to be, where it's supposed to reside. Worship in spirit is worship that's from the heart. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. How about worship in truth? As we stated earlier, God's word is truth. We, so our, the authorization for whatever we do in worship has to come from the truth of God's word. The psalmist said, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgment endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. We need to be sure this morning that we are honest with what God thinks about any issue with which we are struggling. God created us, and through his word, he has given us the perfect instruction manual. But thankfully, he's also given us cognitive ability, the ability to reason, to think, and to draw conclusions, and all those kind of things. We need to be careful with that sometimes. Because man, in our wisdom, we oftentimes can go beyond or fall short of what God would have us to do from his word. Let us be sure that we are not guilty of thinking things other than what God thinks. Let's do things God's way for the purpose God said to do it. Let's make sure that what we, we do not miss the blessings that God has prepared for us, as Naaman almost did, by looking at what God said and then saying, Behold, I thought. Sadly, I'm afraid that there will be many people who stand before God on Judgment Day and say, Behold, I thought, and miss the blessings of eternity. You know, Jesus had something to say about that. Matthew chapter 7. Many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, and do many wonderful works in your name? And he said, Depart from me, I never knew you. You that work lawlessness. Because you knew my word, but you said, Behold, I thought. The lesson is yours. This morning, if you're here, not a New Testament Christian. You can become one this very hour by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repenting of your sins, that means to change your life. Confess the wonderful name of Christ. It's like that man from Ethiopia did in Acts chapter 8. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be baptized in water, buried with him in baptism, as the scripture says. There you meet the cleansing blood of Christ that washes away sin, rising to walk in newness of life. 
There's a way that Christians must live. Again, according to God's word. It's not according to what we think or feel or desire. Jesus said, be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. As Christians, the gospel compels us to teach and tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to broadcast. That takes on many different forms. God just, Jesus said, just go. He didn't tell us how. Go with the message. Plant that seed. This morning, if you're here, not a child of God, you can do that. We pray for you to do that and implore you to think about these things seriously. Stop relying on your thoughts or maybe the thoughts of others. As a Christian, you may have done those things in times past, but you've wandered away. Maybe you've allowed the world to direct your thinking rather than God to direct your thinking. If that's led to a public sin, if it needs to be repented of in that same manner, we stand ready and willing and help you any way that we can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation this morning, would you come as we stand and as we sing? Oh, listen to our wondrous story.